1: Hello, Simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalists private podcast where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn and I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together we're the minimalists. We're here with Malabama.
2: Hi, everybody.
1: Of course, TK Coleman. It's a beautiful day. Ah, we've got a very special guest for you today. We'll unveil him in a moment we've got the rest of our team here in the studio as well jordan no more professor sean danny unknown we have a special studio audience of one helen is here (laughs) ladies and gentlemen please welcome to the studio julian smith
3: yeah (laughs)
4: wow oh my god
1: Julian, we're going to start with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our show, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast <laughs> at com. Let us know if you're a private podcast subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Betsy.
5: Hi, this is uh, Betsy McCara calling from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, trying to tame consumeristic tendencies is hard, but... Um, something that we can work on developing. Um, But what really is challenging for me is the idea of purging what is already present in our lives. Um, I don't know that it's so much the the sentimental value that things hold, uh, but realizing that most things will have absolutely no value in other people's lives um, you know, like sorting through parents' basements and closets and finding knickknacks, old sporting trophies, tables, all these, all this junk, basically. Um, and can we really justify a minimalist lifestyle, uh, when we know all these things will just end up in the dump? Cause we, they're, you know, made of materials that can be recycled or repurposed. But how do we justify freeing ourselves from all this extra weight of material stuff in our lives, which don't add any value, um, but basically just dumping them elsewhere to be someone else's problem?
1: So, joining us in the studio right now to help us answer this question and a bunch more questions is our good friend, Julian Smith. He has a new book out. It's called The Flinch. I say new because it's new in print, but this book came out like a decade ago. Mm. And it was really influential for me and also a lot of people in our audience. We've known Julian since I think 2010, 2011 timeframe when he was writing a really popular blog. And I've always said about Julian, he was the guy who sometimes you go to someone for some sort of advice or some insight, some observations, and they'll sort of pet your head and calm you down. That's not Julian Smith. (laughs) Uh Julian Smith is the guy who picks you up, shakes the hell out of you, and then sets you down and you thank him for it. (laughs) It's a rare talent that you have. Yeah, And (laughs) this book is an astonishing book. And I thought this was a great way to start this episode was with Betsy's question, because she's talking about the fear of letting go. Now, for me, the fear of clinging has become scarier than the fear of letting go. But it takes a bit of time to get there. And when I was rereading The Flinch, I think I've probably read this book four times now. And it's super insightful. It's almost like you wrote it one tweet at a time because each, each paragraph is essentially quotable. But there were two quotes from the book that stood out for Betsy's question. I'd love to hear your input on these. The first one is, the strength you gain by letting go is more important than any object you own. Mm. Oh, wow.
4: I um I think Betsy, thank you, thank you for calling in and asking the question. Uh I've been to Halifax many times. I'm Canadian. It's really far to drive there from Quebec where I come from because the road is really windy. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's really worth it. And so I really appreciate you calling in. Uh the it's 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 so it's it's strange uh because I feel, I feel what you feel, and I feel it in your voice when you're talking about it. Mm. Uh, And I can, I can feel the, 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 the worry that I think that I feel in in your voice. I think I hear it, and, and the concern that someone might not appreciate something the way that you appreciate it. I'm not sure if I should answer the question practically or philosophically. um, Practically speaking. It's really easy, object after object. I learned this from my fiance to uh, to take a photo of anything that you might value, and then to to discard the object, and then to be able to look at the photo the same way that you would might look at the object. Right? That's mm. like practical, like and a, and a simple thing to do. Mm. Ph- philosophically, uh, to have so many uh, different things and to have them be uh, memories, and to be able to look at something and treasure the memory. So I could see why something like like that would provoke someone to keep thing after thing after thing after thing. I can see that and I feel that, uh, yeah. and it resonates a lot with me. Uh, it's, uh, I, I think, to, to me, the the way that I would think to answer this and the way that I would think to deal with it myself is, is I would look at this situation and I would say, well, it's the memory that's valuable. It's not really the object, strictly speaking. Hmm. And the memory... And that emotion, which is the emotion that you feel in your voice, and I could actually I could hear it betsy when i'm when i 'm listening to that message uh, that the actual memory and the actual emotion is actually in you and not in the thing
1: mm-hmm.
4: right does that resonate with you yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. we often say that our memories aren 't in our things they 're inside us. And last week, we even took it a step further. We were talking about sometimes we cling to these memories that are actually cluttering the present moment for us Mm. in a way. I thought about another passage from The Flinch. And in that passage, you said, you're dropped into a forest alone at night. Can you survive? Sure. Do you stop caring about your 401k? Definitely. Within 48 hours, you're left with the flinches that help you survive. And where Betsy is right now is she's flinching at letting go of some things that aren't actually going to harm her in any way if she lets go of them. And part of the reason it's difficult to let go is the story she's telling herself that no one else will find value in these things and they're going to end up in a landfill. True, some things might end up in a landfill, but you just said many of them are recyclable or donatable. You can get rid of things without simply trashing them. Mm. But I love your perspective here because you're dropped into a forest alone at night, Betsy. You stop worrying about letting go of the things. You instantly let go of them, even if they're still at your home, but you've let go of them mentally because they don't matter in this moment.
4: Mm. Yeah. So that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and the other side is, you know, I, I don't know, I've come to believe something, uh, over time that people are past focused present-focused or future-focused. And typically, it's a state of mind, and people will typically stay in that mode a lot, right? Mm -hmm. They'll be often past-focused, and that'll be their traditional way that they'll spend their time, or they'll be really future-focused, and that'll be the majority of their thinking will be future-oriented. And so it's an opportunity in discarding the past to embrace the potential future, Mm -hmm. Which mm. I think is, uh, it, you know, it, you know that Napoleon Dynamite uh, movie where the guy is passing the football around to himself, and you, it, it, like, I forget the name of the character, uh, but you, you look at these, uh, this this example, this stereotype of this person who is really who believes that their best years uh, are behind them. Yes, mm. and and so so it's like almost like the most. Uh, the the more stuff you have around you that reminds you of your past, the more you're like, oh, those were the good days instead of the good days are now mm. or the good days are coming.
1: Yes. Right? Mm. Yeah. And so we often cling because we're clinging to the good mm. from the past. Mm-hmm. We were talking about Held Wodskin recently, and he wrote the book called The Sedona Method. And one of the things he talks about pride and pride is often holding on to something because you believe you can't replicate it again. Right. When I was seven years old, I was really proud when I tied my shoes. But if at 42, I was proud of tying my shoes,
6: you'd look at me like I was insane. Right. Because I got past that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's interesting how sometimes we cling to things because we fear other people won't appreciate them like we did. But part of having an impact is you have to give up that right to define for other people how you're going to impact them you give people a piece of yourself in the form of art in the form of a story in the form of insight mm. and then they take that and they say oh i'm going to use it to create this result that matters to me and you don't know what that is mm. i think about the uh, the musician seal who said a fan came up to him one time and says when you said this lyric it changed my whole life and he says i couldn't tell her that i never wrote that lyric she missed her misheard it But that's okay because she got what she needed out of it, right? Sometimes you put things out there and people take from it whatever they need Mm. and you got to let them run with it. So will people appreciate it like you? No, they're going to appreciate it very much unlike you. But that's part of the joy and possibility of life. You let something go, you put it out there and then people do some magic with it and you say, whoa, I was able to be a part of that. That's pretty cool. Mm. (laughs) I love that you brought up Uncle Rico
7: julian that's amazing from napoleon dynamite all oh, right yeah <laughs> i'm gonna see how many napoleon dynamite references we can squeeze in here in this podcast <laughs> we got a few yeah um uh, josh i love that first quote that you you talked about with uh uh quoting uh, julian's book there i think i'm paraphrasing here but it's what you gain from letting go mm-hmm. of a thing is is much more valuable than the thing you're letting go of yeah so that willingness to let go betsy that is a superpower And if you can get past this fear, um, you are, like Julian says in his book, you're going to gain something so much more valuable than worrying about Mm -hmm. those trophies making it to the right home. Now, the one thing I will say is, yeah, like some stuff is going to end up in a landfill and that sucks. But as soon as you buy something, as soon as you take something into your home, it's it's already done the damage to the environment. Mm -hmm. So there is a proper way to dispose of things. But them sitting there and decomposing in your house isn't any different than if you gave it to a goodwill and then they ended up throwing it away or something like that. But I'm willing to bet, Betsy, that all of these things that you think, kind of what TK was saying, that you think people aren't going to get value from, they might get more value than what you're assuming, um, with the trophies thing specifically, I know there are like trophy companies out there where they will take old trophies and you can donate them and they will <laughs> use them and repurpose them. Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of different services that will repurpose things that you never really thought of. So it might take a little bit of work. It, it, it will take a lot of work. Hmm. But if you're if you're willing to let go and if and if getting that stuff out of your way is going to help you live more in the present, then um, the work will be well
6: worth it, Betsy. One example with our guests, um, someone asked Julian in an interview, I don't even remember who it was, but he was like, uh, I think most people are just going to buy your book and leave it on a shelf and they won't even apply it. Mm-hmm. And 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 Julian just had this attitude of like, you think I'm going to let that stop me from writing a book? The fact that I put it out there and some people don't use it, that would be silly, right? Yes. Yeah. I've never seen Julian write a book or a post about why you should blog every day, but he's the reason why I blog every day because I read his blog. It was the first blog I ever read long time ago, before anybody was blogging. And he was just writing about just taking risk, being authentic. Um, I remember him referencing Ash Amberger, him referencing Seth Godin. That's how I found out about those people and like the power of writing. And I, ma- I made a vow to myself. I'm like, I'm going to show up every day and write a blog for a year. Mm-hmm. Most of my blogs were crap. But what that did for me in terms of changing the way that I think and the way that I process life was huge. He never put his blog out there with the intent to get TK Coleman or anyone else to blog every day, but it had that impact. And he gets Mm -hmm. to say, Hey, that's cool. I influenced something without having to control it. That's what you do when you let things go without feeling the need to tell other people how to appreciate it.
4: Wow. That's high praise. Julian Smith. It's, uh, I'm, I'm just sitting here and just trying to take it. <laughs> I want to give him
7: more praise, but I don't want his head to get too big. But literally, that's probably the book that I recommend the most because it's so digestible. It's, it's, it's an easy read. And like Josh said, one tweet, like every single line is like a tweet. Thank you. It's excellent, man.
1: Betsy, I'm going to send you a copy of The Flinch. We'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. Our next question today is from Deborah.
8: Hello. My name is Deborah. I am from Brisbane in Queensland, in Australia. I'm a true fan Patreon supporter. I listened to your career clutter episode and it's something that I've been going through a lot in my life. Um, I change my jobs frequently, probably on average every six months to a year. I'm an accountant and get restless, bored, dissatisfied, you name it, very quickly. Over the last 30 years of my working life, I've probably had over 40 jobs. I've also changed careers from social work to owning my own small business to working in different sectors, private, public, and charity. I'm happy with my job for six months, love the new experience, learning involved, getting to know people and systems. After six months, I start to get restless. I get bored, dissatisfied, unmotivated, I start to feel a bit low in my energy levels. Not because I'm super smart and have learned everything, but it's just a pattern that I seem to have fallen into. I then start the cycle of applying for jobs, getting rejections, till I get a job, love it for six months again. It's like needing to buy something new all the time. Uh, I don't know if this is necessarily a problem, Um, you know, whether it's okay to keep changing jobs every six months, but a part of me feels like, I uh, as if I'm chasing this illusion of a perfect job. But then I also think, is it okay to accept a job that I'm not very satisfied in? I don't know. I seem to be grappling with this, uh, I don't know, this issue that I feel I've sort of got stuck on.
1: So, Julian, when we talk to Deborah here, one of the things that she's probably heard on our show, we talk about consumerism, how it doesn't fill the void. It often widens the void but I hear a bit of career consumerism here, right? Mm -hmm. It's sort of taste testing this and this, and this is delicious. And then until it's not delicious anymore. So I move on to the next thing. Quite often we confuse excitement with passion. And when we do that, it leads to this perpetual dissatisfaction, which is where she is right now. She's trying something, initially feels satisfied by it, but over time it wanes and that object of her desire becomes the object of her dissatisfaction Mm. in time. And I was hoping maybe you could walk us through this. I pulled one more quote though from The Flinch. I thought it was perfect for Deborah. You said, straight A student, straight to college, straight to work, straight up the corporate ladder, straight to the suburbs. Damn, you've been scared straight.
3: Mm.
1: Is this you? (laughs) Corridors lead you from bed. To breakfast, to your car, to work, and then home. You have a cubicle you come to every day. You go to the same lunch place. You watch the same shows. You like the same food. They could replace you with a small, predictable robot. And one day soon, they probably
4: will. Dang. Mm. Come on. Dude, that book is timeless, man. (laughs) Thank you. That's nice of you. Uh, I... It, the only reason I was able to write so directly is because I was writing to myself. Mm. I, I want to say that mm. I could I don't know that I could ever scream and shout at someone that directly, but because I was writing to myself and I still that I, I I see that in myself sometimes. And when I was reading it recently, I was like, "Oh my God. And so the ability to call myself out in the future is something I never thought I, I would be able to do, but I've done it. Uh, and mm. so Deborah. Uh, it is so uh I, I don't have i don't have answers right for what uh, you're going through, only you probably have those answers and you, even now you don't have them immediately you have to kind of you have to find them uh, what um, i'll tell you something that i've learned and that might be useful to you uh, is that uh, often uh, in 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 the industry that I'm in today, which is in tech, I've been a tech CEO for over 10 years, and uh, you, you can't really make three-month uh, decisions because things take a long time to build, and it turns out, you know, when I was uh, the CEO of my last company, uh, it took five, six, seven years for things to really take off and for them to happen, all these things. So you realize that you don't have that many, like, 10-year arcs in your life. Mm. And, and And so uh it, it draws you to kind of a uh, inevitable conclusion, which is to me, and you take from this what you want, uh, the uh, idea that there's only a few things that you can really do with your time. Hmm. And and you've got to commit really deeply to those things. And you've got to do it for a long time because the world doesn't want to change. Hmm. and And so if you want to change it in some way or if you want to change your world in a way... Uh, you've got to make a meaningful commitment, and certainly that's not, and it's not to call you out specifically it's not but it's not six months for anyone right mm-hmm. and and so so it, it uh, what I hear from this message is I feel like I haven't heard a sense of purpose, yeah Mm-mm. does that resonate with you yeah yeah, or,
1: or even a sense of obsession because we quite often get really tied up in purpose, or what's my passion? okay, let's set that aside. Maybe you don't have some grandiose passion that you were born with, mm-hmm. but what are you obsessed with? Right. Is often the question that I ask.
4: I like that. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the idea that you would do something and you would do it regardless of what's going on, mm-hmm. regardless of the response that others give you, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of if it, it other thing, people think it's stupid or smart, or if it's going to make you rich or poor or something right mm-hmm. and yeah. and so uh, recently i did an exercise where i thought what are the things that i cared about when i was 10 that i still care about today and there's actually probably like i want to say 3 or 4 things mm. not that many yeah many things kind of have come up and then fallen fallen away over time and and, uh, and it's true, you can learn things and, and you can become a new person on a, on a perpetual basis. At the same time, uh, the, the through lines in your life that created you and that are still making you who you are today, uh, to connect with those things is, I think, a really powerful uh, way to d- drive... How you uh, how how you want to make your next decisions? Yeah, yeah. Julian, can you speak to the the flinch at the boredom?
7: Because that's what really stood out for me. It's like mm-hmm. she feels bored, and we all flinch at boredom. Yeah,
4: yeah, that's, that's true. It. Yeah, so that sounds right to me. And uh, when so meditation is a really powerful exercise. For example, uh, and you can without making it into a really uh, kind of a spiritual thing in any way, you can just sit. And the same way that the, uh, the flinch might provoke you to act, it also, uh, it, it, you, can, you can resist it and just try to do nothing kind of for as long as possible in order to, in order to feel the idea of I need to move or I need to, uh, I need to uh, scratch myself or anything else. I need to change career, all those things. You can just feel them and then just do nothing. And and so the urge can be a physical urge, an emotional urge. It could be any anything at all. And uh, it, it's not even about resistance to the impulse. It's just about feeling the impulse and not reacting at all. Uh, people that have anxiety, they, they in a lot of cases need to learn to do this to not to feel the anxiety, but just be like, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and mm-hmm. not to react because to react to the anxiety is to let it control you. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so there's a, there's something in there to be picked up. That's
7: interesting. Yeah. Cause boredom does kind of lead to anxiety. It, that, I think that's, that's a great observation. Um, sitting with the boredom because I know when I feel boredom, I want to run from it. When I feel anxiety, I want to run from it. What I have learned in the last few years is, um, sitting, I'm a very anxious person, believe it or not, um, usually after too many cups of coffee. Here we are. Yeah, that's right. Yes. But you know, but I do sit with it now. And it does help so much for me to um, hold space for it in a way. Yeah. And when you can hold space for boredom, we can hold space for anxiety, then you can make clear decisions. Longer term decisions. Um, yeah,
8: exactly. Yeah.
6: One thing I'll say, Deborah, really quickly is that sometimes we hop around because we legitimately enjoy the energy of the hop. And that's an authentic expression of who we are. Sometimes we hop around because there's something we're chasing after and we go from place to place, never finding it. Sometimes we hop around because we're trying to escape something. And each time we find a new space to play in, what we're trying to escape from follows us around. To bring it back to what Julian said, the only way to get to the bottom of it is to step back and ask yourself, what is the end towards which my work is a means? What is that highest good I am seeking through my work? And you said it's not necessarily a problem. So it may be the case for you that your highest good is to just be in a place where you feel good doing what you do. You have a little rhythm and a system down for finding a new gig every six months. And you can live with that because that's truly your highest excitement. But you won't figure out what's at the bottom of this unless you step back and demoralize it. The goal here isn't to be a good minimalist. The goal here isn't to be like everyone else. The goal here isn't to be consistent for consistency's sake. The goal is to ask, what do I want? And if it's hopping around, I don't have to explain that or apologize about that to anyone else. But if there's something I'm trying to escape or something that I'm trying to find, you're not going to get it just by switching up jobs. You're going to have to get it by going within and saying, hey, what am I really itching for? And then that's what's ultimately going to take you there. But it's got to come from within. Yes,
1: indeed. We've got another question here. This one is from Andy.
3: Hello, um, this is Ink Bilger Andy calling you from Mongolia. I've been on this minimalist journey uh, since last year, since I watched your TEDx talk, and uh, uh, it, it added great value to my life, and I really appreciate what you guys do. And, uh, you know, I had lots of progress in the last um, year. Um, I minimalized a lot of my stuff, like clothing, furniture, and uh, everything else, books and stuff. But, um, you know, obviously minimalism you keep talking about, it's not about depriving yourself, but, uh, trying to live intentionally. So I'm trying to find a balance right now. Um, not to deprive myself, but also trying to go further because I feel like I can go uh, a lot further with this minimalism. And, uh, but at the same time, and I still have a corporate job and everything else and, uh, um, I do, want, I, I don't want to deprive myself. So I feel like kind of a little bit stuck in a way. And I just wanted to ask you guys what can be done? What can you do in this kind of situation where you're trying to balance it, uh, balance out and, uh, also at the same time, you want to go further.
1: Now, Julian, we often talk about the difference between intentionality and deprivation. We're not the deprivationists or the <laughs> minimalists we, mm-hmm. we, we talk about living intentionally and living intentionally is sustainable. Sometimes it requires short-term deprivation, but long-term deprivation, I don't think any of us are recommending that. We're not about living an ascetic life or mm. sleeping on broken glass or anything, but you do have some experiments in the flinch where there it's retraining your response to the things that we flinch at. And it could be something as simple as letting go. Uh, You have a mug in the book where you talk about dropping the mug and people are just terrified. They even go to their kitchen, grab a mug they already hate and they want to get rid of anyway, Mm -hmm. and drop it on the floor. You feel that resistance or the resistance to taking a cold shower. It seems like a a terrible, horrible thing. Why would anyone ever want to do that? Well, you might want to do it. Not prescriptively, but you might want to do it so you can better understand this resistance that you're experiencing throughout that permeates the rest of your life as well.
4: You want to understand yourself Mm. in different circumstances, Mm. right? And uh, the natural state is always to uh, kind of go towards something that is comfortable and that is easy, right? You find yourself sitting in the same place on the couch at the same time and it wears away over time. And the stairs... Uh In any subway station are getting worn away by the passage of many people over 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 again, and it's the same set of stairs, and they're getting mm-hmm. worn away after so many people are 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 passing by so uh, your uh your objective is to say okay well this this path isn't fate." Uh, so, uh, Jay Krishnamurti, a famous uh, sort of Indian sage who renounced uh, his, the cult that worshipped him, actually, I think around the 1920s, right. uh, said that you could take any rock. This might even be in there. You take any rock, and you can place it in your garden, and you can walk up to it just every day, and just start like saying thank you to it. And over a period of a month, at the end of at the end of that month. You will be like, I love this rock. This rock is God to me, mm. and, and but there's nothing special about it. It it is something that just happened over time, and uh, cr- was was created really by you that 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 experience. And so you could break that anywhere that you want, but it requires in intent and it requires awareness. Mm. and And so I think it's right. It, it it's not an issue of deprivation and trying to take things away for the sake of taking away. It's about uh, a middle path that allows you to do the things that you do with intention for uh, deliberate reasons instead of by accident. Mm. That's right.
6: You you have this concept in the book It's titled The Flinch, but you call it The Forge. Mm. And you describe the world as kind of like this potential furnace that can, you know, burn you, but also that can sort of purify you like the gold. Yeah. I, I love to hear you just kind of riff on the forge a little bit and how even sometimes those involuntary kinds of uh, sufferings or challenges, if you will, how they can play a role in this.
4: Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough, you know, to, to think about pressure and challenge and pain as things that are good for you because we're we're all going through life, and we're all really doing our best right and and so the idea that you would need to be challenged more or the idea that you would need to suffer more is is really counterintuitive and and actually sounds scary and sounds dangerous and really sounds unpleasant at minimum uh but I think that the way the place in which we find ourselves is just in this place where we've just chosen the same suffering over and over and over again. And it's about choosing different suffering instead. Mm-hmm. Something that will take you somewhere else rather than that will keep you in the same place over and over and over again. That's the, the idea of there being a forge is just about experiencing a kind of suffering that will challenge you and that will take you to a different place.
1: Fundamentally, it sounds like you're you're talking about sacrificing your comfort mm. especially for these short-term bursts like hey I'm not going to be comfortable right now that's the beginning of any mm. challenge is being willing to be uncomfortable
4: no doubt about that and and it's uh being as you get older you it's actually more and more difficult for that to happen that's right and and you get uh, it, it it's very easy for someone who's 20 to say well dad you need to behave this way when that 20 year old becomes 50 years old or something they uh they themselves they're not the person that they that they were before uh they have have placed themselves in a, in a well-worn path the way anyone else has right mm-hmm. and and so that's a little bit why this message whether it comes from me or from anyone else is eternal it's because it presents you with, hey, there are other alternatives here. It doesn't tell you what's right or wrong, it, but it forces a introspection, which is useful for anyone in any position that they are. Yeah. man,
7: Andy, the, the one thing that I heard you say that um, I don't want you to feel bad about is he was like, I still have a corporate job though. I'm like, I can't give it up because I don't want to give up, you know, the comfort that it provides me, which... I totally get that. You got to pay the bills. You mm-hmm. you you got to put food on the table. Um, you've got to put gas in the car. So I, I know that Josh and I talk about leaving our corporate jobs, but this isn't a prescription.
3: Yeah,
7: this is more about Josh and I getting to a point where there was a chaotic amount of discomfort, mm-hmm. and we had to do something drastic to change that. Um, I mean, I literally packed up all my stuff and pretended I was moving and unpacked for three weeks. Like that's how drastic uh, of a thing I needed to do to change my state.
1: It was uncomfortable.
7: It was uncomfortable. Mm. And and I I wrote something down here, um, which I think might help Andy is like, the more I think about it over the last 13 years, minimalism isn't this perfect life. It's not like, you know, Josh and I, we finally found something that we love to do. Uh, so we never work a day in our lives. Right. I mean, that's... Mm kind of BS. I'm sure there's someone out there who can speak to that, but for all intents and purposes, I don't think that's uh great advice. So Andy, it's okay that you're not doing something that, uh, that, that, that doesn't make you feel like you're working, you're working and that's great. Um, but where I'm trying to go with this is that minimalism has helped me to hold space for the discomfort and shed a lot of the things that were making me uncomfortable. So mm. with that chaotic situation that Josh and I were in, uh, you know, paying off debt, getting rid of the 80-hour work week, uh, paring down, all of those things, it created less discomfort. Still discomfort in our lives, though, but now it was more manageable. And, mm-hmm. and Andy, um, yeah, just don't feel bad about being in a corporate job, man. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that.
6: So I, I, I would say you don't need to apologize to anyone for being in a corporate job, but you also don't have to live a life where you feel the need to apologize to yourself about not being who you want to be, yeah. And so, minimalism doesn't begin with what am I willing to give up. It begins with what's the life I want to have so badly that I'm willing to give up something else in order to have it. And what Julian gets at with the flinch is asking yourself, man, what's that life I want to live? And then being honest with yourself and confronting the resistance that's stopping you from doing what you need to do. It's not about anybody else's standards. But it's about what it, what is your heart calling you to live, and being honest with that. Mm. I'm passing the ball to you, Kobe. Hello.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, and it it might take it it might take time to figure out what that is, and it might take presence, and it might take you know taking a, the clock and and running it backwards to try and. Figure out, wait, hold on what was what was the purpose when I started? what was I trying to do here at that time uh, and now to be able to look at it straight, be able to see the parts that you did right or the parts mm-hmm. that you you were happy that you did then but turned out to be mistakes and and to look at them and try and uh, uh, mourn for the the places where you made choices and now you're looking back on it and you don't like the choices that you made. Uh, but then to make choices again with fresh eyes, like that power exists in Andy the way it exists in anyone else. Mm-hmm.
1: We're going to check in with the Patreon live stream here in a moment. So if you have a question or comment for us, please drop it in the chat. But before then, we have another question here. This one is from Crystal.
0: Hey, this is Crystal from Malaysia. Well, I used to allow the outcomes of my actions to define who I was, but I've come to realize we are not our failures nor successes. So who do you think we are then when we let go of our attachments?
1: Our first or our second book, Ryan, started with this line, our, our, our identities are shaped by the costumes we wear. Mm-hmm. And I meant costumes literally, like Ryan and I used to wear a suit every day to go into work and that became part of my identity. But also our costumes can be the oversized house, the luxury car, nothing wrong with these things morally, but also understanding our identities get wrapped up in a lot of these things that we didn't even know we wanted, but because we're following someone else's path, we're accumulating the same things that they accumulated. We thought those things were going to make us happy. And then enter Julianne Smith with a line like this. Would your childhood self be proud of you or embarrassed? Ooh. And that's a difficult question to sit back and, and ask. Where did that question come from?
4: it I when I hear that, first of all, I'm shocked that I wrote it,-huh, because again, it would be impossible to confront someone directly with that question. Mm. And the only reason I was able to write it is because I'm writing it to myself and writing it to an unknown public. But the great thing about being presented with that is that you can then look at that question and you can ask ask it yourself, of yourself and be able to say, hold on a second, what, what did I intend to do? What, what, what did I think was impressive or just magical or what did I think was special when I was a kind of a pure, less scarred up version of myself? And, and, and can I, can I be honest and can I be authentic to that person now in some way? In some small, tiny way, like what kind of thing can I do that is, is an authentic reflection of who I am instead of uh, trying to represent me to a certain uh, set of people that I'm trying to impress out in the outside world. Like I, need, it's, I am the person I need to impress. I'm the person that I need to be proud of, not other people. If that comes secondarily, great if it doesn't who cares if i love myself and if i am able to be proud of myself
6: would you say that is is the essence of who we are that that capacity for self-love that capacity for creativity and reinvention
4: i think that there is an authentic person first of all versus like a blank slate yeah. right and where you can reinvent everything and and turn it to zero so so to me i i feel that a person can reconnect and it's not like some Freudian thing where they need to connect with their inner child or, but, but they can connect with a version of themselves that, that feels special. And that feels uh that they have a bright future. And that feels that when they do ABC thing, that those things are special and amazing. And just, just like, I, I, I have a, I have a, to-do that reoccurs in my system of to-dos that I manage, right? Yeah. And uh, sometimes they're just thoughts that I want to remember. And mm. this one uh, that occurs to me on a regular basis when I see it is, have you experienced the sacred recently? That's all that the question yeah, yeah. asks. And I'm like, Oof. yes or no? <laughs> and then I check it off and then it'll recur like 45 days or something in the future, right? And and so a super vague question but it's really meaningful for me. And when I look at it, I know what the answer is, yes yeah. or no. And sacred is not sacred universally. It means something different to someone else yeah. than it does to me. But it lets me say, okay, like, was there something special that I experienced that I felt was was worthwhile? And I know when I've experienced those moments, and I bet anyone else knows too, right? And uh, that gives them a sense as to whether they have done something that maybe would their childhood self would be proud of or embarrassed. Mm. Have you written this checklist anywhere? Because I want to know more
7: about this checklist. Yeah, that's <laughs> a very powerful checklist. <laughs> it really is, man.
4: That's a uh, wow. That's incredible, man. Mm. Yeah.
7: Uh, 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 yeah, I won't push you on it. Um, <laughs> maybe you can just
1: text it to me. I, I won't share it, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Don't believe him. He has automatic tweets set you, up. Anything you text him just goes out automatically. That's right. That's
7: right. It was the worst app idea ever. <laughs> no, okay. So getting, getting back to Crystal's question here though, um, it makes me think about when we were in Nashville, Andy Davis opened up for us and we did, you know, we did our talk and we were doing the Q&A and someone asks Josh yeah. like, well, you've given up all your, your things. So I just have a simple question for you. Who are you? Mm-hmm. and Josh had the best answer because I'm like oh I'm glad she didn't ask me that because I don't know how I would answer that <laughs> right um but what did Josh, I say? <laughs> Josh said uh, I am what I desire and I was like that was actually really profound I know you were just giving her something back that was kind of ethereal sounding mm-hmm. but that has really stuck with me obviously because you know Nine years later, I'm, I'm talking about it. Wow. But, but it is true. It's like when I think about who we are as a person or who I am as a person, well, first off, the older I get, the less I identify with this Ryan Nicodemus is and then like having a mission statement. Mm. It's more about it is what I desire coupled with um, what am I trying to give, you know, to, to the world or sure. the community or my friends or family or whatever it is. And couple that with the purpose that I serve. Which, uh, I've talked about this a a little bit, but, you know, we always talk about where's my purpose? Uh, You know, Julian has a purpose, Josh has a purpose, where's my purpose? Mm. But purpose is not, it's, uh, I don't see it as an ownership thing. Purpose Mm. is something that when you serve it properly, it'll own you.
4: Yeah. And, like what, sorry, this is a very, very crazy way to say it. And so, just take this with a grain of salt, perhaps, uh, patrons. Uh, But it's like, like, what are you willing to die for? Because that's kind of what you're doing regardless. So you might as well be willing to spend that time in that way. Mm. And and if not, and I want to emphasize again, please take the language that I'm using. It's deliberately provoking. Take it in that way. It's like this time is passing. What is worth it? What is really worth it to you? Wow. That's amazing. Mm. That's going to go on my checklist. When I, when I see you...
1: <laughs> <laughs> every 45 days,
7: have you done something you're
4: willing to die for? Wow. That is, that's good, man. No chant, no big deal.
1: Yeah. <laughs> when we talk about we are what we desire, that's a faster way to think about it because also our desires become our prison in a way, too. And we start desiring the desires of other people when we follow the, yeah, you know, straight A student, straight to college, straight to work, go up the corporate ladder. Nothing inherently wrong with those things. But is that what I desire, or did someone else desire it for me, right?
4: It's uh is it mimetic? I saw someone that I respected, and I became I got this funny thing. I, I tell this story often. Uh an, an old friend of mine, I used to hang out with a lot of tattoo artists and piercers and these other things. And I. Uh, I I looked at him. He had a lot of tattoos, and he was maybe twenty five, and I was probably eighteen. And and I was like, "What is it like to have all those tattoos?" You know, I wanted his experience. I had almost none, and he said, "Julian, it is fucking awesome."
6: <laughs> <laughs>
4: and and I was like, "Wow, it is. It's that's and so it, it really from the age of eighteen, I was like, I want to be that person. I've actually and I've followed that through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a that's an outward." manifestation of an inner thing that i feel but the important thing is is that is that you're becoming that person regardless of when you found that moment regardless Mm -hmm. of when that occurred to you of when some sacred thing maybe occurred to you that you're like wow and that you're able to see the arc of that potentiality through to its conclusion whatever that means
1: but how do we know then that that is your desire and not his desire just being mapped onto you? Yeah, it's so
4: challenging. That's true. It, it, and it's a deep question because almost everything that we want, we probably saw out there. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Right? And so uh, it, it is, it's done by following a kind of weird inner path. I don't think that I have all of the answers, uh, but it it clearly comes by being uncomfortable And by stepping away from what's really obvious, Mm, right? mm. Because at any given time, whatever you find, it's probably because it's in the zeitgeist. Lots of people are thinking it. And so you have to step away from that by definition to find something that's outside of that realm. (laughs) Intellectually, I
7: know that all my desires are mimetic desires, Mm -hmm. but... Emotionally, I don't feel that way. I feel like a lot of them feel like they're yours. I feel like a lot of them are mine. But like, it's the same thing with consciousness or free will. It's like intellectually, I don't think I have free will, but I sure do feel like I have free will. Yeah,
4: I I definitely am thinking my own thoughts. Yeah,
6: (laughs) (laughs) and and desire itself is a kind of um, adventure and self discovery, if you will. It's a form of exploration. I think it's less important to be able to intellectualize in the moment and say, wait a minute, is this 100% purely my desire? And it's more important that we be willing to engage that desire with honesty and be willing to revise it, to modify it along the way, if for whatever reason, following that desire doesn't serve us. So, you know, you can get in your head about it all day long and be like, okay, I'm attracted to my wife, but Am I attracted to her because culture is telling me that I ought to be attracted to her? Hey, man, I'm attracted to her, okay? So let's work with that. And if being attracted to her is creating problems and doesn't work, then maybe we can analyze that and get underneath the hood of that and see what we can do with that to modify it and make sure that I'm living a life in alignment. But like, it's what gives you joy. It comes back to that simple question, what gives you joy that I think is so critical to that, you know?
1: alabama let's check in with the patreon live stream what do you got for us
2: i have a question here from ella my 13 year old son says that i've passed my fears on to him and it's made him scared to do things Mm. how do i avoid doing this to him and stop being fearful of things in my own life
1: Oh, contagious fear. I mean, that is a thing. Fear yeah. is certainly contagious. If, if Mallory all of a sudden just started screaming, ah, oh, help! Like, we're all going to feel at least some <laughs> sense of fear around I'm going to start that. jumping around just to match your energy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you talk to someone like Ella, Julian, and uh, they're like, hey, I didn't even realize I was doing this, but I was making the people that I care about the most... I was passing my fear down to them,
4: yeah I, I I've often said the the most powerful feeling in any given room becomes the the feeling that everyone feels, right mm-hmm. and so it, the the feeling has got to be pretty powerful, that fear has got to be pretty powerful that she has in order for her to transmit it to another person. It's protective. she is trying to protect him when she does it, uh, but clearly what she needs to do is she needs to realize well i don't know she needs to be aware of what danger really is present or is in the proximate future does it really exist or is it a reaction that is just perpetually happening in a cycle to certain stimulus so definitely it begins with wait why why am i why is this happening is it is it a a truck i'm about to am i about to be hit by a truck or is it more like if you go across the street something bad will happen to you i'm not really sure what it is and so it's gotta you have to deconstruct it in the book it's often uh referenced this idea of like confront it so that you realize nothing happens Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. it's it's uh it's a type of therapy that is exposure therapy that really forces you to look at it and to feel it and then be like oh actually that was fine and oh that was actually fine it i will say that this has made me into the type of person that just immediately confronts things the moment that i see them hmm. probably too much where i need to calm down and step back and be like you know what i can let this worry go and i can Just allow myself to feel it. Here, the opposite is happening is what I'm hearing, which is someone is saying, uh, I am reacting over and over and over again to the same thing. Maybe I need to confront those things to see whether or not the danger really is there.
1: I think that fear is certainly contagious. Anxiety is contagious. Worry is contagious. Concern is contagious. You see it wash over someone's face and all of a sudden other people in the room pick that up. It's similar to a yawn in that respect. Mm. But also joy is contagious. Happiness is contagious. Peace is contagious. Have you ever been in the presence of someone who just seems so calm and chill and grounded? Mm. And all of a sudden it's like, oh. Yes, (laughs) I feel that too. And so perhaps the best way to show up for the other people around you is to exhibit the emotion that you want them to catch from you. I'm trying to think how Kapil Gupta would answer this. (laughs) And I think he would tell the 13-year-old, your
7: mother cannot make you feel any way. <laughs>
6: <laughs> I bet that would feel
7: good. <laughs> but you know, she obviously can't tell her thirteen year old this. But the one thing that I'll say, Ella, is just because your thirteen year old blames you for something um, or accuses you of something doesn't make him right. So mm. it sounds like you've taken on the the, the responsibility of of giving him uh, these fears or passing on these fears. But I'm just going to posit that you don't necessarily have to take on that responsibility. Now, what you're really asking is, how do I support my son? And that is a great question to ask. Mm-hmm. So if your son is coming to you and saying, hey, mom, I'm fearful because you're fearful in these situations, then it, in my position, if I was there, I would be like, oh, I'm sorry you feel that way. Uh, how can I support you? What can I do to support you best? Mm-hmm. And like let him kind of tell you what he needs rather than you know, the four of us trying to tell you what we think he needs. <laughs> <laughs>
6: You know, I think uh, there's kind of a correlation between the way we successfully transmit fear and the way we unsuccessfully transmit faith. So think about growing up in a religious home, for instance, and your parents like, we're going to church on Sunday. Well, well, why? Because I said so. And so all you really know is that uh, mom's really anxious about us going to church. Dad's really anxious about us going to church. So you develop a connection in your mind. Going to church, feel anxiety, Mm -hmm. right? In a similar way, like the kid's going outside and and the parent gets afraid. Well, come back in. Well, why? Because I said so. All right, so going outside means somebody gets afraid. And so you learn to create these connections. Like when I go outside, I feel afraid. Mm -hmm. When I go to church, I feel anxious. And the way that you get underneath that is you demystify it all by having conversations about the why and being honest with the way you feel. Like, hey, we have dinner at this time. We have curfew at this time. Mm -hmm. I want you to text me when you're coming home because of these really awesome positive reasons that I'm Mm going to give to you straight. Mm -hmm. It's not because I'm imagining you being murdered. That might be what's happening in my imagination. But the positive reason is I want to know that you're okay. And if you ever need anything, I want to be able to communicate with you as fast as possible. The more we can demystify our fears by not being afraid to honestly talk about them and the goals they point towards, the more our children can listen to us and go, oh, okay, that's just mom's fear or mom's fear is merely an indicator that this is the value in our household. And they can kind of not take on everything that, you know, every emotional experience that you have.
4: You, um you're right that resonates with me a lot this language of you're seeing someone else's world and you're able to see their world without being in it
3: mm, so
4: oh, yeah. it, you're, you're able to experience this authentic communication where the other person's world is re- first of all is clearly real to them
9: yeah
4: and even though it is so first of all you have to treat it as real and then second of all in treating it as real you're able to say well first I see this in you and i believe that you believe it and that sounds like it's terrible yeah but then to be able to say just because it's happening out there doesn't mean it's immediately happening to me yeah and that that's through communication and through a being able to open space for the other person it's so hard it's hard in every relationship it's 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 hard everywhere it's hard with my mother to be able to see what she's feeling but to not feel it i still feel mm-hmm. when yeah. she gets anxious about abc thing and lord knows she does i feel the same thing you know how can you how can you prevent that like you came from this woman like it's mm. not like it, it, it's deep and so when you're feeling that to be able to say yeah it's real but at the same time it doesn't mean it has to be my world it can i can just see it and and respect it in them.
1: Yeah, I don't have to pick up your anxieties. I don't Mm -hmm. have to pick up your fears. Mm -hmm. I don't have to pick up any of the things that you're accidentally transmitting to me through your own insecurities, past traumas, anything that you've picked up. Mm -hmm. And even if you're accidentally trying to hand it to me, I don't have to take it from you. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you realize that, that's when you become free. And it's not about your parents' or your loved ones doing something to help you overcome your fear, it's about not picking it up from them. Mm -hmm. We'll check in with some social media questions here. We got one from Facebook, Renee has a question for us.
2: Why are people everywhere addicted to fear? It's almost like we're drawn to it as a society. Mm -hmm. Is this a learned habit or are we born with it?
1: Julian, I I have a, a theory that we are often addicted to things like fear, because of the certainty it gives us, sure it makes us feel I know at least I can
4: feel afraid yeah, mm. mm-hmm. yeah when you you feel afraid it's, it's first of all, it has a direction it's very clear, it has a purpose, and it gives you an obvious set of things that you need to do in response it's uh, it can it can be easy and it can be addictive, but it can turn into a habit that because it gives you purpose you're just like okay right and so when you see something that someone is shocked by then you become shocked by it and it it transmits both from you and through you to another person so it it, it I think that's right it it does transmit through people it does transmit through families it does transmit on the street mm-hmm. if three people are looking up at a High-rise, a fourth person will look up, a fifth, and then a whole crowd is looking up at the high-rise to see what's happening. Even if nothing's happening. Mm -hmm. If nothing's happening, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, And so, yes, it is. And that's why it takes courage to do something different. It is so difficult when 10 people are looking one direction to look in the opposite direction, which is why it's powerful, Mm. which is why it needs to be something you're like, wait, hold on a second. It is so powerful to be in a crowd of people. Everyone is like, I think this is happening. I think that's happening. And you're just like, I don't know the answer. Mm. And I don't think any of us know, actually. But it it is a confrontation. To be able to do that, and it's really challenging to be able to tell other people, I don't know, and actually, I don't think any of us really have a clue what we're talking about. Yeah. So mm. the habit of being able to do something like that, those are tiny challenges, and they're, they're easy for anyone to do, but to do them because, because they exist and because you're able to open your world up uh, as a result of doing them is something that is really worthwhile.
3: Yeah. Mm.
7: Yeah. The practice of saying, I don't know, there is a lot of value in that. It's So I come from a, a very strict Christian religion, Jehovah's Witnesses, and I used to have all the answers, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Let me just tell you all the answers I said. And now I don't have nearly as many answers. I have some answers, but uh, there is this thing that I've had to really get comfortable with, with the not knowing and being okay with not having all the answers. And it is a powerful thing. Like it makes me think about how Josh, uh, my wife and I were walking down in Hollywood to a concert and a cop pulls over this car, escalated very quickly. Cops are drawing their guns Mm -hmm. and everybody in Hollywood starts moving closer to the cars because they're like, oh, what's going on? What's happening? Except for Josh, my wife and I, we just started sprinting the other way. We were like, oh, we don't know what's going to happen. It's probably better we don't find out. Yeah, but there is a power in being able
6: to like turn away when everyone else is is fearful, for sure. Mm. And, and and one one thing about you guys turning away in that moment is there's the understanding of a real danger, right? If I move towards that car, I could get caught up in something I don't want to be a part of. Well, now social media has lowered the cost of experiencing danger while still giving us that dopamine spike. That Mm -hmm. comes from engaging things that are frightening. So Mm -hmm. you can go online and you can watch videos of instances like that, Mm -hmm. videos of really horrific, tragic things happening that none of us would ever stick around or perhaps even be able to handle if we were watching in, you know, in physical uh, space. And so one of the core ideas of the flinch is that there's this kind of instinct that served us very well, but times are different now. Mm. We're more comfortable than ever before. Our relationship to risk is really different. And part of what comes with that is the ability to gamify that flinch instinct by just feeding us images, feeding us stories that that appeal to that part of us, Mm. while at the same time insulating us from the danger. And that's kind of what makes for an addict, the ability to indulge some kind of high in a way that's so low cost Mm. that you don't have to have the accountability that would come with it in nature. Yeah, it's like it's
7: like we are addicted to that dopamine of solving a problem that really isn't a problem, hmm. It's if that makes any sense. So it's like a real problem is driving in your car without a seatbelt. That's a real problem. If something bad happens, you could pot- potentially get injured, maybe even death. So we put the seatbelt on so that way we feel a little bit safer when we drive. But there are things in life, and social media highlights this, that are these metaphorical seatbelts that we when we don't really need to wear the seatbelts but yeah. we we love to feel righteous about having uh, an answer to this imaginary problem though.
3: Mm.
4: Mm. You can look to practically speaking you could look for places where there's asymmetric upside or asymmetric downside. Mm. And what that means is is where risk is vastly disproportionate to reward or where reward is vastly disproportionate to risk. And often they're even with one another. Uh, but whether or not it is, uh, it, it makes for very clear decision making when you can write a book and you write it once, but it's read a hundred thousand times, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Or uh, where uh, something—I'm sure this has happened to lots of people here—where you're in the subway and there's a sketchy person next to you, but you're like, "Oh, he's probably fine." There's mm-hmm. asymmetric downside to this situation.
6: Yes. Mm-hmm. So
4: often, uh, you should feel that reaction, that physical reaction to be like, oh, actually, it's much safer and that I, for me to step away. So there's real danger in this world and there's real reward in this world. And it's about finding those places where they, they exist and acting in those ways.
1: Another mm. you know, question here. This one is from Jules on Facebook.
2: I have a fear of growing and achieving more than I currently have. I want to grow my business in a new direction, but I keep worrying more about failing than flying. How do I move past this?
1: Well, Julian, it's true that falling and flying are the same thing 99% of the time. <laughs> they just have
4: different endings. <laughs>
1: yeah, I saw like
7: on Reddit or something, a pilot was like, just so you know, every plane landing is a plane crashing very deliberately. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he's never my pilot. <laughs>
6: Seriously, <laughs> Flight over
1: here, Julian, <laughs> can, can you talk a bit about... This is a, a common fear, the, the fear of, of growing. In fact, I, I pulled out a passage, a quick one here from The Flinch, and you said, fact, those who face The Flinch make a difference. The rest do not.
4: Mm. Wow. Uh, TK, when you spoke to me earlier and you were like, uh, talking about how the blog that I uh, was writing affected you, that's the way that you can do it. Writing is so powerful because... It is outside of the realm of personal experience in a way, and so that is uh, that's a way that you're able to do that. And so, so when Jules is mentioning here this idea of being able to think about her business and be able to uh, grow it in a new direction, but this ability to head forward with it is not clear to her how to how to do it and how to how to take the next steps. It's businesses and personal projects are so challenging because they have a long time frame, mm. And, and so you're doing something and it doesn't work and you're doing something and it doesn't work. I'll tell you, I, uh, uh, Jules, maybe this resonates with you. Uh, I created a business, um, a number of years ago that eventually, uh, I ended up raising over a hundred million dollars for and, had hundreds of employees. And the way that this business genuinely started is with a, again, there's a checklist. There's always a checklist. Mm -hmm. And the way that it started is with a checklist that said, work on secret project. Mm -hmm. And it was very small, right? And it wasn't complicated to do it. And all that I had to do was to give myself enough each day to check off that thing. It's not challenging to check it off. It doesn't require a big leap, all that it requires is an endless consistency mm-hmm. and that consistency being small at the very beginning you could do tiny things they don't need to you know you don't you don't need to um to make gigantic decisions immediately so something very very small and something easy to work on could be the step that gets you to where you want to go dude I gotta find that. I gotta hear about this checklist more, Julian.
7: But the 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 working on a secret project. You know what I love about that mm-hmm. is that you are not putting it in anyone else's hands to give you permission. And what I mean by that is, anytime I have an idea, the first person I go to is Josh. Hey, I have an idea. What do you think about this idea? And if he if he gives me praise, then great. I feel good about myself, and maybe it's something we'll work on. And if he doesn't, then I will quickly you know dismiss it and move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. But this whole like secret secret project is um. It's just you doing it for you, doing something that you're really interested in. Yeah, that's yeah. that's awesome,
4: man. Yeah. But and you, the, oh, God. No, no, no. You, it, it, it is, it's so important to be able to... The, the reason the checklist is so valuable is because you, what you're doing is your past self is confronting your present self. Mm. You wrote it. Maybe you write it that evening before. The next morning, you're looking at it. You're like, aha, that version that believes in themselves wrote this for me now to be able to make good decisions. And uh, the vagueness of secret project means anything can be done. Mm. It can be small if you feel small. It can be big if you feel big, so long as it's happening. And I think that that ability to just consistently take a step forward, uh, Helen and I, uh, who's in the audience here, we did an uh, 800-kilometer walk in Spain 10 years ago, 500 like four miles.
1: football fields.
4: <laughs> yeah. It's a, lot, it's a lot of football fields. So it's 500 miles of walking in Spain for 30 days. It takes about 35 days. And uh, that's about 25 miles of walking per day. Wow. And so you do nothing else. You really just walk. What's really remarkable about that is when people hear the story, they're like, wow. But in actuality, to do it is very simple. Mm-hmm. That you just start in one place and you just do not ever stop doing it. You just walk. And you just keep walking. It is not a challenging thing to do. And so when you when you look at checklists, when you look at all these things, you can could, you could see them and say, okay, actually, it is not a challenging act in the moment. And it feels harder looking at it than it is to actually do it.
1: Yeah, mm. yeah it's like you're, yeah. you're looking up at Mount Everest, but then you realize when you start doing it, you were just looking at the hill in your backyard. It wasn't actually Everest. It felt... Like Mount Everest.
6: Yeah. Power of starting small, man. I often say that the people who get stuck aren't the people who start small. They're the people who try to start so big that they don't start at all because they get so overwhelmed. They never build the momentum. Mm -hmm. But uh, to that point of staying silent, um, we've all heard Derek Sivers talk about how when you share some dream or goal you have with someone, they get excited you know, for you. They get proud of you. I'm going to write a book. Oh, man, that's awesome. That's and, and your brain doesn't really know the difference between actually doing the thing and getting the praise from people for I'm going to do the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's the flip side to it, too. Wayne Dyer, the late Wayne Dyer, the late great Wayne Dyer. Shout out to my man. He, t- he called this the sacred power of silence. He says that um, whenever you share some goal you have with someone and they have a negative reaction to it. Your energy goes out in the direction of their reaction rather than into the creative process itself. And so you find yourself defending your dreams, debating them, justifying them, explaining them, trying to make sense out of them when you really just need to be busy creating them. So every Mm. moment you're spending talking about what you're going to do, no matter how awesome that conversation is, is a moment spent away from actually doing the thing. Absolutely.
7: Um, Real quick, Jules, uh, in the spirit of starting small, in the spirit of the flinch, in the spirit of this checklist, um, I would encourage you to start your own checklist, Jules. And the first thing on there might be, uh, have you practiced failing recently? And the reason why I say that is because failing, you can fail in so many different ways. It might be rejection. Uh, it might be the fear of uh, uh, losing an investment, whatever it might be. Facing that fear head on of failure. First off, you're probably not going to fa- fail as much as you think you will. But second, it will I think it will help uh, condition you to yeah, look more towards the flying than the, than the failing
1: or the falling. Let's check out one more question here. This one's from Twitter. Nico has a question for
2: us. Fear of change is the thing I struggle with the most. I know what I want and what I need to do. So why is it so hard to make that change and become a newer version of myself?
1: It's interesting because in some sort of existential way, change doesn't exist because it's the only constant, right? And mm. so there is no such thing as a static life that is never changing. And yet it seems to me that that is the thing that we're always searching for as completionists. If I just get the correct house, the correct car, the correct job with the correct job title, and I'm promoted at the correct intervals after I graduated from the correct school and I have the correct amount of social media followers, then I will be complete. I will be full. I will be finished. But of course, Something else sweeps along could be an illness, a disease, a death of a loved one, a company going out of business, anything that might happen that you didn't expect and then change is forced upon you. And I think one of the lessons from the flinch, especially for Nico's question here, and I wrote it down, is the flinch doesn't want you to change. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, when we're flinching, when we're resisting, it's because there's something in us that is afraid
4: of that change. You got to deconstruct it and split it in two. I'm afraid of this thing. Why? A and B. Deconstruct it into two parts. Deconstruct it again, like the exercise of the five whys. Ask why. Ask why again. Ask a third and a fourth and a fifth time. And eventually you will arrive at the root of what is really going on. What you're reacting to isn't the root. It's what's happening at the surface. And so here, there's this ability to look at it and say, hold on a second, I can't, I'm struggling with change. What am I really struggling with? And to really, really deeply understand it. Once you do that, you're able to say, okay, there is a deep exercise that I need to do versus this surface reaction that is happening over and over and over again. Mm.
6: One of the concepts in your book that I love so much. Um, by the way, when I when I called you uh, Kobe earlier, I don't know if y'all got this reference, but there's a famous moment. Uh, it's the no flinch moment, mm. where, where where the uh, player is inbounding the ball, and and Kobe just Matt Barnes by the way. Matt Barnes, yeah, yeah, and and he and he puts it in in front of Kobe's face like he's gonna throw it in his face, and mm. Kobe just like keeps looking at him. He doesn't flinch. It's just such an awesome moment. Mm. Book was written before that moment, by the way, though. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so one of the powerful concept, concepts from the flinch is this idea that you, you find motivation, not just by looking at the promise on the other side of your challenges, but by looking at the promise of the challenges themselves. In other words, like if, if you want to write a book and you've got challenges involved with that, well, the promise on the other side of that is you get to have written a book, mm-hmm. but the promise of the challenge is that the process of writing the book will transform you in these ways that you can't imagine. And so you lean into your challenges, not merely because of a belief that you can overcome them, but because of this excitement you begin to feel through experience of how these challenges are going to make me this super interesting, fascinating person that I can't possibly become just by sort of, you know, staying on this side of my dreams and imagining how cool my life would be. Yeah, that resonates with me a lot. I, I, was, well, you wrote it. <laughs> yeah. your, your version, your
4: version excites me. It's, uh, very early on in my writing career, uh, I had the good fortune of writing a book that because of timing, but also like we had done some good work and it became a New York Times bestseller the first week it was out. And I was like, oh, and nothing really changed in my life. I guess it felt good. And there were rewards sort of like, in the future, I suppose, but my inner state didn't feel better. Mm-hmm. So actually getting that accolade was meaningless mm-hmm. and 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 had had no real effect on my life. But what did was I know how to write, I know how to write a book, I know the steps of doing it, and actually this great challenge that lots of people feel is actually not, strictly speaking, difficult at all. Mm-hmm. Just like taking the step every day, the way that it happens for me is, is writing a thousand words a day and then discarding probably most of them because they're bad, as you know. <laughs> and so uh, keeping the stuff that is good and keeping the stuff that's worthwhile,
3: mm-hmm.
4: if the, the, the ability to act On a consistent basis, the ability to move forward on a consistent basis means that you have lots of different experiences to choose from. Instead of staying where you are at the moment, you have lots of different changes that you can take on and that will make you into a new type of person. And so it's just about going out again, 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 no uh, no matter what it's like that you feel at the moment. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Julian yes! Smith. <laughs> oh, wow. Dude. The only Incredible. podcast you go to
1: with a ovation? I,
4: yeah, this is the first one. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Julian, uh, we'll obviously put a link to The Flinch, which is now out as a hardback. Now, for the longest time, it was Seth Godin, you published it mm-hmm. as... An ebook, and hundreds of thousands of people read it, passed it around. I know we passed it around mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. Is there anywhere else we should send folks to check you out? Uh,
4: yeah, I mean, you can uh, check out the work that I do these days at InOverYourHead.net, which is still a blog and still getting published. Mm. I am the CEO of a company, uh, Practice, which is uh, what I do on my day-to-day basis. Uh, but I, I really do think that this work that of this book uh, is some of the best work that I've ever done which is why it continues to resonate with people mm-hmm. and I, I, I think that's something I could really be proud of and and that's why I would urge someone to go out not even beyond reading this book but like to go and find the work that matters for them because you will always have that once you have done it
1: mm-hmm. thank you so much for joining us yeah. today thanks Bronner. for
4: being here ma'am.
1: Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalist. You can also follow Julian at Julian on Twitter. By the way, Julian Smith joined us on the private podcast for a bunch more questions. You're definitely going to want to... Tune in to that, patreon.com slash The Minimalist. But now, during the lightning round, this is where we answer your answer your questions with a short, shareable, less than 140-character response. We have 60 seconds to answer your questions, and we put those minimal maxims in the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. You can find those show notes at minimalists.com slash podcast. Malabama, we got a question here from Decode Life.
2: In practice, fear is difficult to eliminate. How do we handle the fears that come up in our day-to-day lives?
1: Well, let's get 60 seconds on the clock for my good friend, Ryan Nicodemus. Oh, you're going with the pithiest of all the pithy answers to go first, huh? <laughs> pithy Demus, we call him.
7: <laughs> oh, that's so much better than the other nicknames I got in high school. <laughs> all right, let's go. 60 seconds. Uh, my, my pithified answer is this. Courage does not exist without fear. So with this question, it's how do we handle the fears? How do we avoid the fears? I don't think we avoid fears. I think we hit them head on. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, we want to be cautious. We want to do what we can to minimize as as much uh, damage as possible. However, you cannot get rid of fears in life. And if you want to be a courageous person, you will have to hit those fears head on.
1: That's spot on, man.
7: Yeah,
2: Nice.
1: Facing the fear is what's important. It's not important to hide the fear or eliminate the fear, pretend the fear doesn't exist, That's right. but actually facing it. T.K. Coleman, we got 60 seconds for you. What do
6: you got for us? All right, man, let me actually take 60 seconds, which has already started. You don't have to be fearless in order to fear less. The way to overcome fear isn't by trying to dupe yourself into believing that you need to become some emotionally detached automaton. The way you deal with fear is by being present to it Allowing that fear to be your teacher, naming it, calling it out for what it is, and then asking yourself, what must I do in spite of the fear? And then taking what you must do and breaking it down, boiling it down until you can start so small that it's easy to muster the courage to start because you don't need the courage to finish. You just need the courage to get going. And once you get going, the momentum will take you where you need to be. Your feelings are not there to be overcome. They're there to be engaged with consciousness, with compassion, and with clarity. And when you do that, you're free, whether you feel fear from time to time or not. Mm.
1: i like to append that because I think that is spot on. But I want to help Decode Life understand something that I have finally begun to understand about fear myself. And it is this. Every fear is a byproduct of expectations. There are two types of fears. There are the rational fears that point us toward danger. If I do that, I'm going to get hurt. I'm going to get mangled. I'm going to get trampled. I'm going to end my life. And that's not what I want. That fear is rational. Okay, pay attention to that fear because it points toward danger. Unfortunately, most of our fears point us in this other direction. They make us afraid to take any action at all. I'm afraid of being embarrassed. I'm afraid of what other people might think of me. I'm afraid of offending someone with something that I think is right. And when we experience that kind of fear and we shut down, when we flinch from that kind of fear, it prevents us from moving forward at all. And so one fear points us toward danger. Yeah, that's useful. The other fear, it's clutter. It's just in the way. Let's check in with our Patreon live stream here in a moment. But real quick, first for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. We announced this last week, but I can't wait to share it with you. I'd love to hear Ryan and TK pontificate about it a bit as well. But the first time in almost 13 years, we're launching our own course. We've never taken the time to do this. And My God, how much time did we spend on this? We've been working on it since last year, Mm. by the way. And we're finally ready with it. We've spent hundreds of man hours and woman hours, Malabama. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Hundreds of hours... Filming the course, writing the course, trying to configure the course, reworking the course, refilming the course. <laughs> There's a lot of refilming of the course. Oh, man. Because we wanted to get it right. We wanted to add value, create something that stood the test of time. It's called Simplify Everything, and it launches on May 29th. It's five weeks. Now, it's 72 hours only you can sign up for. So make sure you're on the mailing list over there at simplifyeverything.xyz, not .com, simplifyeverything.xyz. It's five weeks. It's 17 video lessons. In each lesson, we tackle three different clutter problem areas. Each week, we tackle a new form of clutter. It starts with the physical clutter, the stuff, but then we move on to digital clutter and calendar clutter and financial clutter and relationship clutter, identifying all of these different problem areas that we've heard from thousands of people and what they experience. We've been able to distill your experiences down to a dozen or so years of experience helping people let go of the excess that's in their life. There's 135 different decluttering solutions throughout this course, a 30-page workbook, student forums, and much, much more to help you let go. But what was your experience of filming the course, preparing for the course, and helping people understand that clutter goes
6: way beyond the stuff? Yeah, for me, it was a very symbolic experience because it represents what I consider to be The, the dawning of a new era in minimalism. I think you guys have been laying the foundation for the past 12 years. And you've talked about it, you've mentioned it on a number of different occasions, but I think the philosophy has evolved and people are really ripe and ready for it, for an understanding of minimalism that says, this is not just a philosophy of design. This is not just about the colors that you wear. This is not just about the amount of things that you own. It's about simplicity in every area of life. It's about clearing away all the clutter regardless of the labels and categories we apply to it. And so for us to really unpack that in a dedicated way, not just an episode, not just the riff here or there, I thought that was really exciting and I just can't wait to see what this course does for people and the feedback that we start getting from people. We're not just going to give you the ABCs of simplicity. We're going to give you the XYZs because we're going to help you get some closure in areas of your life that have been previously unsettled at simplifyeverything.xyz. Get out of here. (laughs) (laughs)
7: Uh, Man, I mean, as far as um, listeners, readers, audience goes, I'm really excited because I think we've done a really good job of um, kind of touching these different areas, touching on these different areas in a way that really anyone can find value in and i'm really excited to see if uh, people find value in it the way that I think they're going to find value in it. Because honestly, if this goes well, I would love to do more of these. Mm -hmm. Like this is a, it's an amazing uh, experience. I loved loved working on this project with you gentlemen. Um, I did learn that TK is the Kobe Bryant of pontification. (laughs) Um, I mean, like we showed up the first day to film. So just to give you a little backstory, we showed up the first day to film and I'm looking at all the things that we're going to talk about. And as I'm looking at it and preparing for it, I'm like, oh yeah, I talk about this all the time. Talk about that all the time. Talk about this all the time. Not going to be a problem. So I didn't really prepare too much because I felt like I've been preparing for the last 12 years to film this course. Talking to you, Josh, is so much different than talking to a camera. Like looking at the camera, like instantly my heart starts to like rate starts to go up like 50%. Um, So, yeah, it was a little bit of a a learning curve. Um, It took me a while to find the groove and figure out exactly how much preparation I needed to do. But all that to
1: say is... All three of us went way out of our way to make this the best course possible for all of you. And it starts with the stuff. And I think that's important. Minimalism, I don't want to skip past the stuff. Yeah. Because I think what we talk about there with the stuff week, when we, the very first week, It is that physical manifestation of what's going on inside you. So before we tackle the internal clutter, the relationship clutter, the mental clutter, the calendar clutter, we do want to clear the excess around us Mm -hmm. because what does that do? It makes room to start tackling all of these other forms of clutter Mm -hmm. throughout the course. It's like the door to a house. You yes. got to gotta go through that door, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Simplifyeverything.xyz. Put your email in there. We'll never send you spam, junk, or advertisements, but we will let you know when the course is available. It launches May 29th, 72 hours only. Let's check back in with the Patreon live stream, Alabama. Got a question for us?
2: I sure do. This question comes from Adam. He says, I may be obsessed with personal development. I'm constantly trying to learn, grow, and improve. I love the feeling of leveling up. I know JFM has an aversion to better, but is there a healthy improvement?
1: (laughs) You know, I love this question, Adam, because it's a misunderstanding of what I'm saying. And I want to clarify for everyone. I think it's okay to get better. It's okay to improve. Mm -hmm. And uh, the healthy way, it's another way of saying, is there a good way to, but betterment or improvement is a byproduct. It is not the goal in and of itself for me. And I want to be clear about that. Yes, I've become a much better podcaster over the last eight years, a much better writer over the last 20-something years. I've become a much better public speaker over the last 30 years, right, Uh, or 20-something years. And I have done so not to get better, but immersing myself in something that is compelling to me, makes me better, improves me just by default.
6: Yeah, I think for some people, self-help is just another manifestation of self-hate instead of reading books and taking courses from a place of already existing self-affirmation from a sense of, hey, I'm already enough. I'm already worthy. I already love and respect myself, but I'm going to read something to pick up some tools as part of this adventurous process to learn how to express who I am more authentically. For some people, it's more like, Oh, I hate myself and here's just more evidence for why I'm hateable. And and there's this constant obsession with maybe the next book will set me free. Maybe the next course will make me worthy of love. Maybe I'll finally be happy if I buy one more self-help, motivational, whatever it may be. And so if you're pursuing self-help in that way, then it's going to be unhealthy. At the same time, for some people, it might be like dancing or playing basketball. People on the outside might say, I don't see how you can spend all those hours doing that. But if you're feeling joy in the process, then it works for you. I know for me, if they came out with some study that said, hey, new study shows that reading self-help books actually makes you less healthier, I would be in trouble. Mm. I would be in big trouble because I wouldn't be able to stop reading them. Not because they make me better, but I, I just enjoy listening to smart people say interesting things about life. I I can't not do philosophy. I can't not learn from other people. I don't even know what that looks or sounds like. I don't want to know. And so if you can do something with that kind of joy, which is what dancers do, musicians do, artists do with what they do, then it becomes a kind of art. Mm. There's got to be TikTok in there somewhere. That was good. <laughs>
3: There's got to be a TikTok be, somewhere hey, in this dang, guy's that.
7: Uh, <laughs> Man, you know, watching... Josh, uh, go down the road. Uh, it's not self-help, um, but going down the road of, 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 of expounding uh, perspective on things. And TK, watching how you do it, what I see is two men really trying to get a deeper level of understanding. Yes, and like that is. I think always going to be beneficial because when you have a deep, deeper level of understanding, a you can make more deliberate decisions. And when the discomfort and when the uncomfortable things come up and the flinch comes up, you're able to um, hold uh, space for that in a way that maybe you weren't to before. You weren't able to before because now you have a, a deeper level of understanding about those different emotions. So, to answer your your question head on, uh, self help to better yourself to constantly feel like you need to level up. I agree. It could be a it could be something that actually holds you back mm. and leaves you with a feeling of being incomplete. But approaching it in a way of having a deeper level of understanding, I don't think you could ever go wrong with that context.
1: Yeah. And quite often that desire to get help from the self-help book or the course, whatever it might be, can actually get in the way. I think it's going to make me a better version of me. And the thing that we try to convey with The minimalists and everything that we do is that better version of you is often found not by addition, but through subtraction. You've already added all the stuff to make me better. And it didn't work the way that I wanted it to work. And so right now it's like, let me get rid of this. Let me get rid of this. Let me get rid of this. What are we doing? You're uncovering yourself. You're understanding yourself better. Professor Sean just ran into this recently. He tracks all the books that he reads and he's a fervent reader. And yet recently he's decided like, hey, this tracking of everything I'm reading and making the notes is actually making it a little bit less fun. Mm. Is that right?
10: Yeah, I think so. I just put my pressure on myself to choose what I was reading based on what was going to help me finish more. Uh, You know, I I started reading this book a few months ago and quit halfway through because I wasn't really feeling it. But if I pick it up right now, I only have 100 pages left. Mm. That's another book I can I can mark as having read, which makes me a better person. And now you have to slog Mm.
1: through it, even though you're not enjoying it. But if I read enough, then I will be better. Well, okay, let's say you're better, but you're miserable. Did you make yourself better
6: at all? Right. Mm. Mm. I had a similar problem, Professor, with note-taking. I used to love just documenting what I was reading, not merely in terms of a checklist, but, you know, taking notes from the books, writing my reflections. And at one time, they were very valuable to my students. I was leaving leaving behind this rabbit trail and I could see it having a positive impact and people finding it interesting. But it got to the point where I started to pick books based on what would be easier to take notes for. Um, I started to feel unhappy about how slow I was going because it's like, all right, instead of reading for an hour that day, I'm reading for like 15 minutes because I need time for note-taking. And I just got to a point where I said, you know what, this ain't the goal, man. Maybe I'll come back to this if an easier, more aligned way emerges, but I'm just gonna go back to enjoying what I do and just reading. And I've been having fun ever since, yeah. Yeah, So
1: so if there isn't joy in the improvement or joy in the betterment, then you're not actually getting any better. You're yeah, right. just dragging yourself through the mud for no re- reason at all, just to show that look how dirty I can get.
7: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think about like Sean and his example where maybe. There was a point in time where he was like, I really want to have a deeper level of understanding. I want to expand my knowledge. I want to be able to speak um, you know, intellectually to these different topics. So that was his goal. And keeping track of all the books helped him get there. But now we can see how smart Professor Sean is with or without his list. Yeah. And he's at that
1: point where like that list doesn't serve him anymore. So kudos to you, man, for recognizing that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. bravo. Alabama, we're going to check back in with the live stream here in a bit. But in the meantime, what do you got
2: for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners.
8: Hi, Josh and Ryan. My name is Sandra and I'm from Norway. I would like to
4: share a quote that changed my view on minimalism. I've been on this journey for about seven years now. And this month, I have been doing my version on the minimalism game where I try to let go of 500 items in total. My boyfriend saw a pair of shoes I was going to sell and said that they were nice shoes. I told him I agreed, but that I did not wear
0: them and that they did not add value to my life anymore. He then said this, Just because something is pretty doesn't mean you have to own it. Hey Ryan and Josh, this is Muriel from Grand Haven, Michigan. I'm currently a senior at Grand Valley State University and I'll be graduating this May with no student debt. I've put in a lot of work in many ways to get to this point, but my number one recommendation for people looking to avoid student debt is to apply for scholarships specific to who you are. For example, I'm studying natural resources management, so I applied to many scholarships related to my field of study. You can find scholarships based on your interests, academic performance, special talents, your major and many other things. I even got a $1,000 scholarship from my credit union. There are scholarships for everything. You just have to intentionally search out the ones you have the best chance of getting. They may take a long time to apply for, but it's worth the time you put in if they help you stay out of debt. Additionally, check to see if your university has a list of available scholarships. GVSU has a website called My Scholarships where you can create a profile and they suggest scholarships specific to you and you can apply for them directly through the website. You can also search for specific scholarships there. This is what I found to work for me and I hope some of your listeners find this helpful
1: welcome back y'all let's get into some talk aboutables today I got a few of them here for you our little talk aboutables segment mm. TK what if I need it later ooh what yeah. if I need it later so many people have sent me this video hm
9: all the things that I can get Cause what if I need it? What if it me gets a job as a Julius Caesar And I could've used the sheet as a toga Oh God, it feels a waste just to throw away These are solid, not a script, plastic What if I need it?
1: Oh, I'm so mad we didn't make that. (laughs) That's so good. (laughs) So what he's bringing up here is the just-in-case fallacy. Mm -hmm. I'm going to hold on to this just-in-case because what if I need it? Mm -hmm. But what I love here, and this is an exercise we've done with a lot of listeners, and especially at our live events, as soon as you say it out loud, you see how absurd it is. I'm going to hold on to this toga because what if I need it? What if I want to pre- be Julius Caesar? Of course, as soon as I say it out loud, I feel compelled to let go of the thing. And that is the exercise that has helped me so many times. I will be incomplete without this shirt. Mm. As soon as I say that, I let go of the shirt. I will not be Joshua Fields Milburn without these jeans. I won't be respected if I don't own these shoes or this belt or this car. No one will like me if I don't own the things that I own. And as soon as I say that out loud, it's like the universe gives
6: me permission to let go. Yeah. You know, one antidote to what if I need it is what if I don't? Because (laughs) if the answer to what if I need it turns out to be yes, at least I have the possibility of getting the thing back. But if the answer to what if I need it turns out to be no, I don't have the possibility of getting the time back. Mm. The time that I wasted holding on to something that I never actually needed. The time I spent being held back from the life I could have been free to live because of this hypothetical question that haunted me and convinced me that I needed to carry around around a weight that I never actually needed. What Mm. if I need it? What if you don't? Mm. Mm. That's great, man.
7: The, the just in case items or the what if I needed items for me is it's been so easy to let go of because well, a the whole just in case rule in our experience with coming up with that rule, but also you can't prepare for everything. And like if you try to prepare for
1: everything, then in a way, like you're prepared for nothing. Yes. You know. Yeah, and the just in case rule. By the way, you can find the minimalist rule book. It's free. You can download it. The minimalists.com slash rule book. There's 16 rules for a living with less, but we got you. They're not really rules. They're boundaries. They're tools. They're weapons to help you fight all of the excess in your life. (laughs) That's my favorite metaphor so far was those rule books. They're really not rules, they're weapons.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Random thought, by the way, I always think whenever you guys say, just in case there's a movie, Five Heartbeats, where one of the singers goes out into the audience, sees this lady sitting next to her man. He says, excuse me, is that your man? And she says, yes. And he goes, well, here's my number just in case. And then he starts singing just in case. He's oh, not the man. man that you
7: need. I'm going to start doing that <laughs> on other live shows, Josh.
6: <laughs> so I always get triggered every time I hear
1: just in case. <laughs> All right, Joe, I got one more talk aboutable for you here. It's about getting rid of 50% of your clothes. Mm. I think that this is interesting <laughs> because quite often people struggle with clothes clutter, even though it's probably the easiest area to start. It's either the junk drawers or your closet. Although I would just say this, your closet is generally a junk drawer for your unworn clothes. Mm. The question I have for you is what would happen if you got rid of Of 50% of your clothes. I would have five t-shirts instead of 10. (laughs) (laughs) Not you, damn it. Oh, my bad. (laughs) (laughs) But I think for the average person, what would happen is they would actually enjoy their clothes more because they're not going to get rid of the 50% of the clothes that they like the most, that Mm. they wear the most, that they enjoy the most. They go into the clothes and they say, this 50% of the clothes, either I wear infrequently or I don't wear it at all. Mm -hmm. I still have things from three years ago that have tags on it. And it's a problem not because, well, it's not a problem that is sitting there in your closet. It's sitting there in your mind. You're constantly neurosing about those things. And by the way, they're getting in the way of the clothes you do wear. You have the clothes you wear piled underneath the clothes you don't wear in your drawers or in your bins Mm -hmm. or on hangers. And so it just makes it. In fact, you sent me this TikTok the other day, Ryan. So good. It was, uh, maybe Jordan can superimpose it in the video after the fact, since we don't have <laughs> access to it right now. But basically it is this person who opens up a closet and there's a hoodie hanging. Explain the hoodie to it's me. It's like
7: a bright orange, you know, bright neon colored hoodie. And the 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 joke was like, there was someone in the hoodie and all you could see was their head poking out. And like legitimately they were in the hoodie and they were like, hi there, it's been a while. Love me,
1: pick me, love Love me. me. Pick me, love me, pick me. (laughs) And then at the very last second of the video, he just scoots it over and picks a different hoodie. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, he's like, get out (laughs) of (laughs) here. But I wanted to bring this up, this question, because I asked myself this question recently. I just donated half of my jackets. Wow. Now, oh, my. That's huge for you, man. Longtime listeners will know that I, my wife calls me a jacket slut. Yeah. Dirty totally. <laughs> <laughs> little jacket slut. <laughs> I'm rather promiscuous when it comes to jackets, I <laughs> barely own anything. Did you ever wear two at once? <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> Uh, it just didn't feel right right (laughs) Um, but here's what I will say about those jackets so I used to think I had six jackets which felt like too many I actually had eight jackets Mm. and I said what would happen if I got rid of half of these well mathematically it would just mean I have four jackets left and the question was, do I need four jackets? Because I don't really own much. I don't have two pairs of pants and I only have two pairs of pants because one of them ripped and I had to get it repaired and mm. I need to buy another pair of pants to wear while I was getting the other pants replaced. Yeah, I have, I don't know, maybe a dozen or so shirts, T-shirts, long sleeve, short sleeve, et cetera. And of course I have underwear, socks and shoes, but I just don't own a whole lot of clothes. I'm totally fine with it. I found shirts that work well for me. And yet I always had the layer of accessory with a jacket, right? Yeah, yeah. And the the problem was I wore all eight of those jackets relatively regularly. But we have this rule called the duplicates rule. Just because I wear something from time to time is not a good enough reason for me to keep it because it was taking yeah. up a lot of space for me Not just in my closet, but also I was thinking about it. Do I really need all of these jackets? Or am I really getting the value from it? Could I get just as much value from having fewer? Or might I even get more value from having fewer? And so now I own four jackets, and they all have a different function. One's an actual coat. So when it gets cold, especially I live up in Ohio, so it'll get in the low 30s. Throughout the winter. So, I have an actual coat. Uh, I have a light jacket that I can wear out that isn't as heavy. I have a, a dress up sort of jacket. We wore to an yeah. event we just went to recently with Dave Rams. Yeah, I wore that jacket and it looked like I was wearing something that was a little more sleek and, and not even just a regular plain black jacket. I and wore then, my tuxedo t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but, but another one? <laughs> the final one I have is a rain jacket, which I actually bought last year because it was raining so much throughout the winter. I realized I needed a rain jacket. Mm. And so, yes, I had eight jackets. Now I have four. Could I get by with fewer? Yes, I could live with zero jackets. Mm. But minimalism is not about living with zero, living with nothing or going without it's about understanding what is appropriate for me. And right now yeah. I've identified yeah. what's appropriate for me. Yeah, You could survive, but you would not thrive. Mm.
7: And minimalism is not about survival only. It's, mm. it's really about that. That's about thrival. Piece. It's about thrival. That's right. Survival. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think who here has
1: who like, uh, yeah, who, who has your same size shoulders? It's definitely isn't me. Jordan, I've donated jackets to him before in the past. I realized I wasn't a leather jacket guy. <sighs> I wish I was. But Jordan is. I yeah, mean, he is. we hired him only because he's so cool. That bastard, and he doesn't even know how to do video stuff. Uh, <laughs> it's actually Sean doing the video things right now. <laughs> yeah. We just needed someone to sit there and look cool in a leather jacket. Yeah, yeah. yeah. which he that. fulfills that criteria. But you can you can totally pull denim off though, which is kind of sweet. I donated my denim jacket. No, what? I know, man. Dang. You don't even know me anymore. Oh my bro. god, <laughs> are you? I can't even call you James
6: Dean anymore. <laughs> a, a, a brief philosophy of clothes. In the closet. Everything in your closet is either a commitment to your future or it's some aspect of your past that you're not willing to let go. You, in theory, could go down each item in your closet and you can ask yourself, do I intend to wear this? Or you can ask yourself, hey, is this something that I no longer intend to wear, but it was just valuable for me? And so those two questions would be when and why? If I intend to wear it, when do I intend to wear it? If I no longer intend to wear it, then why do I still have it around? And if you ask those questions when and why about everything in your closet and you can't come up with an answer to it, then it might be time to let it go. Not because you have to, but because you don't want to compromise your life by living in a space between a future that you're not willing to commit to and a past that no longer serves you. That's mm. so good. We're going to move on to the minimalist
1: home tour this week. This one is from Cheryl. Looks like Alabama. Titled this one a classy office. Classy office.
2: Oh, it was just so pretty. I <laughs> loved all of the colors that were in this too. That is classy.
1: We'll take a look at this here real quick. What I really liked about this. You bring it up here. Is it shows that minimalism doesn't need to be sterile or devoid of color. You can still be a minimalist and have things on your wall, have color on your screen, have things that are useful or beautiful to you. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't walk in this room and say, oh, there must be a minimalist here. But then I would look and see the intentionality and I'd realize like, well, this person has minimalist intentions. This person has a minimalist understanding of the world. Even if they don't have the same aesthetic preferences as me, Cheryl and I have different preferences. And guess what? That's okay because minimalism makes room for my preferences, for Ryan's preferences, for Malabama's preferences, for TK's preferences, and for Cheryl's preferences.
7: Yeah. No, I, I would love to hear Cheryl's, uh, I was going to say explanation, but it's not, it, it, there's no need to explain herself. I would love to hear the uh, reasoning behind all of the things that she has. Cause I can tell like everything on her wall. hmm From the the pictures there to I don't know if that's a vision board or maybe it's a reminder memory board. I don't know what it is. But everything seems very, very intentional. And that yeah, that's that's awesome, Cheryl.
2: It is. And she when she sent this in, she said, I love my nineteen forties desk and the Chrysler building, obviously.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so there are pictures there of for if you just listen to the audio version, there are pictures there of the Chrysler building as well. I was thinking Mm -hmm. about getting a vision board, but it's gonna be one of those eye charts. What's an eye chart? (laughs) Oh, oh!
7: I love jokes. They're so good. (laughs) Hey, Ryan, you ever heard of jokes? And they would just all have like big letters, so you could just feel like you always have 2020 (laughs) (laughs) vision. You go to the (laughs) the optometrist and use their eye chart. (laughs) So Uh, you you can send
1: in your minimalist home tours podcast at com. We send these out every Friday to anyone who subscribes to the video version of the podcast. We send you photos to your inbox, patreon.com slash minimalist, if you want to subscribe to the video version of the podcast. Speaking of... Patreon. Let's check in with the Patreon live stream, Alabama. What do you got for us?
2: We have a comment here from Violet. She said, Yesterday, I panic signed up for a pricey year long self improvement course. I've been kicking myself because I know I already get more benefits from the minimalist podcast and books than I will from that.
1: Mm, I wonder if it's too late to get a refund. This is the problem with impulse purchases. We do an impulse purchases segment from time to time mm-hmm. here on the podcast. You can send us your voice memos, voice recordings to podcast if you have an impulse purchase similar to that. But signing up for something on the spot is what? I am, I feel deficient in some way. And yeah. that could be true, right? Like if I want to learn how to dance, I can't dance, right? And so if I want to learn how to dance, I'm probably going to have to take some dance classes. But if... I panic and say, "I won't be complete unless I, if I, I gotta sign up right now for a dance class." Now, all of a sudden, I make I'm committing my future self to something that I didn't really take mm. into consideration. I I wasn't deliberate about
6: making that decision. Yeah, yeah. It, it also has the emotional sensation of investment because at a certain level, it literally is an investment that you're making in yourself. And so when you buy a self help book, sign up for a self help course, that's an investment you've made in yourself. Unfortunately, the hardest part about a self-help book or a self-help course is actually reading it, actually finishing it, and actually applying the ideas in your life. And the majority of people don't do that. And so to protect yourself from... uh signing up to a bunch of things and making a bunch of impulse purchases, it's usually helpful to have a kind of 24, 48 hour rule, barring any kind of emergency, like here's a book that's going to show you how to change that flat tire you're in the middle of having right now on the highway, which I <laughs> doubt you're going to be downloading on Kindle as you're stuck on the highway. <laughs> but barring any kind of situation like that, it's like, hey, I'll wait 24 to 48 hours to see how it feels to make that purchase. Because if I really need it, After a good night's sleep, I'll wake up and say, I still want to read that book. But hey, thank you for the kind words. I'm glad you get so much value out of our show. And I hope you can get money back for um, the thing you signed up for that you don't really feel like reflects where you want to go and how you want to spend your time.
7: I think you might be onto a new genre there, TK. What's that? With the uh the instantaneous
1: like I can
7: help you right now with this one thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I- I'm going to so you write a series of books like how to change a flat tire. And it's like a page long. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But if you really need it in the moment, like it's uh, $30 is well worth it. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Oh, Somebody's going to do it. It won't be me. Dude. Um,
7: Josh, I think you need a better reason as to why you should learn dancing.
1: Uh,
7: for example, um, maybe if I got a petition together and got people to sign it for you to do the Christopher Walken Fatboy Slim video.
1: That's oh the only God. reason that I would want to do right, it. Right. I know. It would be awesome. I think you think you could do it better than Christopher Walken. What if I... We stopped doing the podcast. <laughs> I will dedicate the next year of my life. <laughs> Sold. We just Get need to comments, do like, a,
2: we got to make this happen. That's right.
1: <laughs> we need to go fund me for this. Yes. Yeah. Otherwise I'll be homeless and a really great dancer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but oh, yes, I, I, uh, that is my why mm-hmm. behind learning to dance. Mm-hmm. I, I, I teach a writing class, org, and I often try to talk students out of taking the class. Yeah. And the reason that I do is if you really want to take it and you make it to the end, I guarantee, I mean, literally, there's a, a money back guarantee on the class. Mm-hmm. I guarantee that you will have improved your writing. Now, why is that? Because you actually did the things that I know would have helped me when I was first struggling to write. And I wish I would have done this for simply 30 days, for four weeks. If I would have done this, I would have improved my writing exponentially, right? And so, much like how Julian was talking about, like, I I was writing for myself. I made a course that I wish I would have had. But if you're not willing, because I can't upload a writing brain into you. I mm-hmm. can't say, well, here's all the grammar and all. like, Yeah, we, I give you the, the tools there. But ultimately, if you're not willing to put in an hour a day for something like this, then please avoid taking it. You're just wasting your money and you're wasting my time and your time mm-hmm. by signing up for the course. Yeah. All right, let's check in. Actually, you know what? Uh, Thank you for the Patreon live stream comment. Before we check back in with the stream, if there are any more questions, you can drop them in the chat. We did a combo segment today. We usually end our episodes with something we call more about less where we read something that is a jump off point for Further discussion, but I thought this would combine perfectly with our sucky ads segment. This one is from the Washington Post. What's the title of this article, Malabama?
2: This is called It's Not Your Imagination Shopping on Amazon Has Gotten Worse. Everything on Amazon is Becoming an Ad. Ooh, okay. Mm. So
1: let's have Malabama read this and then we'll walk through it together. And I'm sure TK will play the angel's advocate throughout.
6: <laughs> the first two words, of two letters of ad is A-D for adore. I adore <laughs> ads. I'm just, I'm just making up some stuff. Go ahead. Sorry. It was
2: good. <laughs> Amazon is the first app many of us think about to buy things online. But is it actually a good place to go shopping? When you search for a product on Amazon, you may not realize that most of what you see at first is advertising. Amazon is betraying your trust in its results to make an extra buck. Let pause me pause right you.
1: there real quick. Mm. So, and she's gonna walk through some of those ads. The thing that is the problem here, I don't think, is Amazon Amazon by itself. I'm not one of those people who is like fundamentally against Amazon or fundamentally against capitalism. I know a lot of people think that because I'll often share the absurd terminus when we take capitalism too far mm-hmm. and It becomes consumerism, and then it becomes hyper-consumerism, and you see people, like there's this great account that I follow on Instagram called Humans of Capitalism, and it's just the most absurd examples of people doing consumerist things for attention. The one that I shared just yesterday was like a fig tree. And there was a a fig tree. You can go up right now and you could pull a fig off and you could eat it, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's a person who's putting plastic bags on each fig so they're individually wrapped. (laughs) And you see the bags on the tree. And so it's this whole fig tree filled with plastic. And guess what song was playing in the background? Radiohead's fake plastic trees, Mm -hmm. right? And because that's exactly it. It It was like Radiohead made this song 20, 30 years ago about the fake plastic trees, but now our, even our real trees are plastic. Don't, how does that comport onto Amazon? Well, Amazon, I don't think is inherently bad. I think that it adds value to a lot of people's lives. Being able to deliver goods and services, especially to people in areas who have low access to many of these things mm. at an affordable cost is a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. However, if we're being bombarded now, mostly with ads, and specifically, we don't know it's an advertisement. That's when it becomes a problem. Can you talk to us about some of these ads?
2: Yeah. So the example that they give is they search on Amazon for cat beds, and they pull up a bunch of results that look like cat beds for the most part. Returning to text here, here are the results. Next, we'll put an orange highlight on all of the ads. Believe it or not, that's pretty much everything you see. And what happens is the six items that come up on the first page, all of those are actually advertisements mm. returning to text again. On the first how many pages? On just all the first six page, items on the first six page. Oh, okay. Items. okay, so hundred
1: percent okay. of the first page that you see there, advertisements. Ads. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. But they don't necessarily I mean, they do point out that it's an ad somewhere. It says sponsored or advertisement, but is it tiny text? How does that work? Do you Sean, do you even see it there? When you, I know you're looking at the page on your computer.
10: Yeah, it's really small. It says mm-hmm. sponsored. And it, not even on all of them. Like the first three mm-hmm. results are from the same company. Mm-hmm. So only one of them say sponsored, but you can extrapolate. Oh, layer. wow. They're a bunch together. That, yeah. That's
7: what uh, Google does. Like what when you get the research results, like I've... Found that out the hard way where it's, I'm clicking on the first thing thinking that's the most popular thing, but that's the number one ad that they're giving me.
6: Is there a search option to where you can turn that off, like click a little checkbox and only see organic results or non-ad results?
10: I don't think so. That's a great question. Or maybe if
6: you filter it by something, maybe, I don't know. But anyway, sorry, Alabama.
2: So, uh, returning to text, there's an ad for a brand called Bodisient at the top, underneath the three results that paid their way to the top of the cat's beds listing. They're not even very relevant. On the left is a product featuring a photo of a dog. Yes, a dog for one of Amazon's own brands. On the right is a luxury cat condo that costs $389. <laughs> I
7: wonder if I could live in that.
9: <laughs>
7: not very
2: comfortably. <laughs> Scrolling to the second screen, we finally start seeing non-ads. These are the first products that were actually chosen because they've got the best combination of price and quality, Mm -hmm. but the real results don't last long. Scroll to the next screen and it's all ads again. I
1: I do start to face the paradox of choice. And TK, maybe you could talk about that from an economist standpoint. When we think about paradox of choice, I remember when Ryan and I worked in the corporate world. Yes, there are a million different options. We were Selling wireless phones or home phones or uh, home internet, and you always wanted to just present three options: good, better, best, sort of thing. Yeah, because you didn't want people to face the paradox of choice. And that's what I find with Amazon now. Sometimes if I go there, I'm looking to buy something new. Yes, the the ratings really, really help, right? Mm. But it's also reading the different reviews, what people liked, what people disliked about the item. But if I have to do that with 100 different items, I'd rather just walk away, go to the store that has three options, and then take my luck from there. It's mm-hmm. so
7: overwhelming. I just yeah. went through this with um, getting a new uh, like stick vacuum. Uh-huh. I mean, Ryan and I had one. It lasted a decade. Um, it's time for a new one. So... I start looking and of course, you know, it's like I go to Google and I'm like, you know, best stick vacuums and there's not one for less than $300. And I'm like, I'm not spending 300 bucks on a freaking stick vacuum. Mm -hmm. So I go to Amazon and long story short, I found one high ratings. Um, I don't even know the brand of it, but it was like less than a hundred bucks. And my, my, the fear I have of buying something inferior was like really popping up, but I was so tired of like looking at all these different stick vacuums and comparing them that I'm like, okay, I'm just going to like go with this one that I think is going to be okay. And then I went to YouTube and watched a bunch of different, you know, reviews and people using it and stuff. So um, that's the one we ended up getting. Uh, but yeah, the 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 paradox of choice like led me to literally one where I'm like, okay, this is the cheapest with the highest reviews. I'm gonna do a little bit of extra work, but I was so overwhelmed, I was just like ready to call it and just pick one.
2: Well, the frustrating thing is you can't even fully trust the ratings. Um, the Uh, article actually addresses this too. Here's a set of listings labeled, quote, highly rated. But don't be fooled. These aren't the highest rated cat beds on Amazon. They are also just ads. Mm. Scroll again. This screen has even more ads. These three, highlighting three of the cat beds, under the heading top rated from our brands are all for Amazon's own products. And there's another dog photo in there. It's ridiculous. You keep keep scrolling, the ads keep coming, even if they are repeats. On the first five screens, more than 50% of the space was dedicated to ads and Amazon touting its own products.
7: I'm pretty sure
10: I got sold by an advertisement with this vacuum. Mm.
2: <laughs> Very well might have.
10: Professor? Um, Amazon, Look, if, if a product is doing really well from another company, Amazon sees that and they go ahead and make their own. Yeah. They basically copy the product and then they'll go ahead and promote it as the first result.
1: Yeah. I'm totally okay. It makes sense to me that Amazon's going to put their own products first. I mean, you would understand why. Just like if you go into Target, they're going to shill their brand or Walmart has their brand or, or whatever it might be. Yeah. Now, Ryan, you brought the the stick back and you bought was an actual stick with a lint roller on it, right?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Do not make him spill his coffee. Oh, my gosh. Well,
1: it's got different attachments. It can be a lint roller. Uh, It's got a
6: broom attachment. And it also has a dustpan attachment. (laughs) It never
3: needs charging.
2: Oh, my
6: gosh. (laughs) Hey, This might be a stretch, but I'm going to go for it because I think there's some value here. All right. Angel's advocate time. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to tell you why I'm happy about all this.
3: Oh, yeah.
6: Because anything that gets people annoyed and asking questions is ultimately a net good. Mm. And I love that people are annoyed by this and they're asking questions about this. Is that why he's so annoying? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's just just context every morning he wakes up. (laughs) I want to challenge people and annoy them. (laughs) There's something about new problems that has a way of maybe helping us question the old problems that were always there and are still inherent in the good old days that we yearn for. The truth of the matter is search and research has always been manipulated. It's just more obvious with ads. Mm -hmm. You have never been searching for anything, even before these ads that wasn't controlled by some centralized authority determining for you what options you get to look at. It's like in politics. You think you can run for president? You think you can run for president? Oh, of course. You can technically write your name down on a sheet of paper, but the three of us, we ain't got enough money to run and be taken seriously, Mm. to run and get our ideas out there, right? You think you can just come up with your own energy drink, your own toilet paper, and get the distribution to put it on the shelves at your local grocery store? Oh, no, man. That requires a lot of resources, a lot of connections. Who determines which books go on the shelf? Who determines which items go on the grocery store shelf? Who determines which books get into the library and which books don't show up in the library? Mm -hmm. It's always been decided for us, but without those ads staring us in the face, we've had the illusion of being able to type something into a computer and thinking that whatever comes up is objective. It's never been objective. There's always been a Wizard of Oz behind the curtain deciding the five to 10 items that we look at Mm -hmm. and choosing the thousands of ones that they think, the committee of one, the committee of 10, the committee of 30 people who are nothing like us deciding what shows up in our search results. It's always been that way. Oh, but Google's changed the algorithms, man. They're eliminating this and they're eliminating that. And it's always been that way. Mm. It's never
7: been neutral. Oh, I'm glad you brought that, man. Mm-hmm. Really, what, it, what it's helped me see is that it, it causes me to do more of my own work and, and research and looking at uh, going to YouTube and, and going to different spots instead of relying on Amazon to be like, oh yeah, you don't have to do the work. We've mm. done it
1: for you. Here's the one that you need. as soon as you see an ad, now that we're talking about it or if you're annoyed by it, I get so many people that write into the podcast or call into the podcast, and they're like, I didn't realize how annoying advertisements were until you guys started saying advertisements suck every <laughs> single episode. Mm. The, this episode's brought to you by nobody except for our patrons because mm. advertisements suck. And you're not advertising on the show, you're supporting the show. <laughs> you are not the product. We produce the product for you to enjoy. And that is the difference. For Added value segment this week, Ryan. You've been redeemed. I know, man. I <laughs> redeem you, dude. I have been on such
7: a slump with recommendations for Milburn. I like recommend like a uh, a restaurant, which now I don't recommend restaurants anymore because he eats two things or a stick vacuum <laughs> or a stick vacuum. I've uh, <laughs> been recommending albums, uh, recommended like some shows, and just like swing and a miss every single time. Yeah, we thought, but dang. this one. This one though, it's good. I like. I was like, okay, before I send him like now I'm like, okay, really, is he really gonna like this, or am I just like throwing a dart at a, at a dartboard with my eyes closed? So, Josh, please tell them how I have redeemed myself.
1: The song you hear in the background right now is from a gentleman named Abraham Alexander. The song is called Knee Deep, and it's from his new album. The album is called Seasons, and I love this line, and I think it ties in perfectly the episode that we've been recording today he says knee deep in the unknown just breathe you're fully immersed dry off those tears and start to rehearse sweet lies goodbyes new life when i know everything's gonna change so good man that is the antidote to fear by the way knowing that everything's going to change. Whether you want the change to happen in your life or you would hate for the change to happen, it doesn't matter what you believe because the only thing that's true about the static life is the static life doesn't exist. It is going to change. And people don't hate change. They fear being changed. And that's really what I pulled out of this song. It's a song about accepting the change that's going to happen in your life. Yeah, the album is so good. I went back to
7: see if he had other albums. They're all singles. Like this is his first like complete album. And it's
1: amazing. Keep up the great work, Abraham. Yes, indeed. Big thanks to Julian Smith for joining us today. You can check out his book. It's called The Flinch. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. That's our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, T.K. Coleman, from Alabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this Love people and use things. Because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace.
9: in the unknown, 10 years <laughs> old, but he's still grown. Fico still bold, he told me so. I know. Everything's gonna change and maybe I'm naive Just too young to see Distant memories are blinding me Well, she say? hurry up, hurry up Dry them off, dry them off We got places to go We've got places to go Hurry up, hurry up Drum off, drum off We got places to go Knee deep in the unknown mm-hmm. Just breathe, you're fully immersed Dry off those teas and start to rehearse Sweet lies, goodbyes, new life When I know everything's gonna change And maybe I'm naive Just a young to see Distant memories are blinding me Well, she said, hurry up, hurry up Try them off, try them off We've got places to go We've got places to go Hurry up, hurry up, try them all, try them all. We got places to go, Knee deep in the unknown.